Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to get to bring God's word to you this morning. So last week, uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and last week, what we saw Jesus doing is, as Matt described it, he was setting up a framework in which we could build our lives on. And so he built this out, out this, this worldview, right, that, that we, could, we could hang what we believe and, and the questions that we encounter in life, the most important questions that we face and encounter. And he was building this framework about, about reality, about, about truth and life and revelation, about the result, like what's our purpose and in that, as, as he's building out this framework, he's also setting up and, and explaining that, that, hey, the very cornerstone of all of that, the, the foundation upon which that is built, is him. That he is the cornerstone. And if you know anything about cornerstones, that, that, like if you, um, the cornerstone is what aligns everything and what like the foundation that the house is built upon. And so what Jesus is getting at here is, look, the fact that he is Lord, it's what we see last week, and, and really the, a theme running through the first five chapters of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is Lord, is the cornerstone of everything. And if you pull out that foundational cornerstone, everything else that we talked about last week, the truths that we've been walking through in the Gospel of John, falls apart. It comes crashing down. If Jesus is not Lord, then that holistic worldview we talked about last week is just, it's just another religious philosophy amongst other things. But we believe that's not the case. And Jesus goes on the, the challenge here in, in John chapter 5, verse 31 to 47 to, to answer the question of, of how do we know Jesus is who he says he is? How do we know that what Jesus is saying about himself in particular, about this worldview, about this approach to life and this hope of life here and now and for all of eternity, how do we know it's actually true? And this week, as we dive into the text that Matt just read for us, we really are confronted with three questions that Jesus answers. We're confronted with three questions. And the very first one, Jesus knows is the next question the Jews he was talking to must have had in their minds. It's exactly where Jesus goes next, and he begins to answer the question, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really Lord, Son of God, the one in which we can build our lives, a solid foundation that we can rely upon? And so Jesus, in this passage, he, he begins to answer that question that, hey, look, in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. All right, if some guy just comes out claiming that he is Lord, that, that all of these things, and it's just his testimony, why would we believe that if that's the only witness we have? As parents, you learn really quickly, like, multiple witnesses is really helpful when you have, like, uh, you know, multiple kids. Um, we got our boys for Christmas this uh, these like bubble suits, right? Like the big round bubble ball, they get in, put their arms out. And, and so we've thrown them on the trampoline in those bubble suits and we just let them go after it, all right? And mass chaos typically ensues and it's a lot of fun until, you know, uh, it's not anymore, right? And that eventually always comes with these things. Um, but oftentimes they're out there with their friends. They got a bunch of neighborhood friends. And so um, we will know like when it goes from 
fun chaos to like chaos resembling almost World War III when we hear that blood-curdling scream of our, our middle child. Um, and we, so we, we go outside and we're like, what's going on? What happened? Who did what to who? And, and they're both just like, one's screaming and crying and the other one is screaming trying to be louder than him so that he can explain, it was his fault, not mine, right? Um, and it's really helpful when the neighborhood kids are also out there because we can then go to them and go, okay, what actually happened here? Like, who doesn't, you don't have any, you know, skin in this game. And we begin to hear from some of them, and then, you know, maybe the, the littlest of their friends might just tend to side with, like, our oldest son, because they're just best buddies. Um, and so then we ask the older kids, and they're like, no, 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 this is what happened. And but we can be really confident when um, our, our neighbor, um, their parents, walk across the street, and they're like, yeah, well, this is actually what happened, right? And so like, we get all of these witnesses, and then we can be confident because there's not a whole lot of confidence when my boys are yelling and screaming like that as to what actually happened. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Look, if, like, if I alone am bearing witness, then yeah, don't, don't believe me. But look, there are all these witnesses to me. So listen to them. Listen to them, starting with John the Baptist, verses 32 to 35. He says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he, hear, he bears about me is true. You sent to John. Like, you actually went to him and asked him, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. And so John the Baptist, we've encountered him several times in the Gospels, and in his final witness his final words that we actually hear in this gospel, in John chapter 3, verse 31, we hear what he says about Jesus. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus there. He who is of the earth, talking about himself, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is pointing to the fact here in this final witness that we have recorded in the Gospel of John that Jesus is Lord of all. So his witness is affirming what Jesus is also saying about himself. But it's not just John the Baptist. Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so Jesus' works give testimony to him. It's not just the words he's claiming, but the actual life he's living, the works, the signs in particular that he's doing. And so in John chapter 4, we look back at, at some of the, the signs we've seen in this gospel. One, we see Jesus heal the official son, a, a kid that was about, it was on the, the doorstep to death. Jesus brings back to life and heals him. He is, his works are claiming he is the Lord of life. We saw it a couple weeks ago in John chapter 5, healing by the pool of Bethsaida. Uh, it's hard for me to get that word out. Um, but, but in that passage, we see Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he's Lord of all creation. As he makes these claims, essentially, like what his hearers and he are saying, um, and what they're hearing, he's making a very clear claim that he is Lord of all creation, that he is equivalent with God the Father, the creator of the universe. And so Jesus' works are declaring that he is Lord. And then on top of that, you have another witness. If you're unsure about those witnesses, here's another one on the scene, the most important. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's saying, God, the Father has been giving witness to me, and you're like, yeah, you don't actually believe in him? You don't actually have his word abiding in him? Because you're denying what he's been giving witness to. He does that through a variety of means that we could point out, but specifically in the life of Jesus, it's mentioned earlier in the Gospel of John, but elsewhere in the, the other Gospels, we see the account of Jesus' baptism, where when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon him, and you hear the voice of the Father declaring, Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, though it doesn't say Lord in the text, right? But it says Son. And when we hear Son of God, we should also hear Lord. That's what God the Father is pointing out. That he is my Son. He is Lord of all. I have given all things into his hands. And so we have those three witnesses. And then there's one last one at the end of the text. It would have been really important for the Jews at that time because Moses was the most important figure in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. The most important figure. And so when Jesus goes there, you've got to recognize, like, their ears would have perked up even further. He says, do not think, in verse 45, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. They would have been like, what are you talking about? Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. He wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Where does Moses write of Jesus, right? Like, I mean, when we look at the first five books of the Old Testament that that Moses wrote, do we see Jesus' name anywhere? No. But we do all over the place see God pointing forward to Jesus. All right, Passover land, tabernacle, temple, all sorts of things we see God pointing forward, but very specifically, very specifically, Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 speaks of a prophet who will come like him whom you will listen to. And what Moses is pointing forward to is Jesus there, all right, the, the, the one great prophet, greater than Moses is what he's talking about there, greater than me, there's coming a prophet who has all authority that you must listen to, that there is no option. And so Moses, the Old Testament as a whole, even we could dive into all that and I could trace thread after thread after thread in the Old Testament of how we see God pointing forward to Jesus. Because guess what? All of God's word is centered on Jesus. All of it, from beginning to end. And so we have John the Baptist, Jesus' works, God the Father, the Old Testament, specifically Moses, pointing forward to Jesus and driving us to understand that he is Lord of all. Every one of those witnesses. But here's the thing. Some of, some of you may be sitting there going, but, but yeah, what if it's just a well-put-together story, like, you know, a bunch of human writers just kind of like got together and they wove this story together and it just seems to fit together tightly, you know, just because like they were trying to manufacture something, you know, that, that was a good, essentially, legend. And what if this is all just a legend? We love stories. We love a good story, right? And, and we love latching on. And, and I, my son, 
All right, for instance, um, we have to ask, I have to ask the question, and many may be asking the question of like, is this just a legend kind of like what my, my kids get into believing that superheroes are real? Like, I remember the day that I was, I was walking um, my dog with Hudson, our oldest, and uh, this was a year or two ago, so he still doesn't believe this, but I remember, like, here, we were talking about Batman and the Flash, because we were a DC family, sorry, Marvel people, but, um, but uh, we were talking about all those things, and I realized, like, I, he is talking about Batman as if he is real. Like, he believes, like, he's going to meet Batman for real one day, and Man, I don't want to bring his world crashing down, but we gotta we gotta talk about this. So I, you know, I said, like Hudson, buddy, like you do know Batman's not real, and he looks up at me and he's like, "No, you're just messing with me." And I was like, "No, buddy, like Batman's not real. Like we love superhero stories and and those kinds of things, and they're really cool, but like all of those are actually like we long for a hero. Yes, that's why we have so many hero stories, but they're actually." Just that longing in our heart for a true hero that points us back to Jesus, right? And felt really good in that like moment, like Holy Spirit made me look really good as a dad, right? Pointing to Jesus, right? In that moment. But but the like the point is is that that are we doing with Jesus what kids do with superheroes? Like, are we just buying into a legend? Are we just buying into some well written story? Well, C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. As he was a literary scholar. I mean, well-respected by, by many in his day for the, just simply being the scholar. And he had, he had been an atheist for a long time and actually came to saving faith um, later in life as a scholar. And, and so Lewis, though, argues that the claim of Jesus as Lord simply couldn't be legend for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons. One, first, he says this idea of Jesus and uh, we'll have quotes on the screen here, I believe, um, so you can kind of read along. But he says, this idea of Jesus as Lord being a legend is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation, which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another and it is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the entire earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers, or even the New Testament writers as a whole, embrace this idea easily whatsoever. And they struggled, right? Like Peter, the, the disciples, like Jesus had to continue to reiterate this idea that he is Lord, that he is God. And it just didn't click. It took a long time to click. Like they were resistant to it, Lewis is saying, because like, the Jews were the one monotheistic people in all of the world up until that point in time. And so they defended that. Like that is the Shema. Like there is one God and Lord. Like, they recited that, that idea that he is one, not like the idea of Trinity that we begin to unpack with Jesus, right? That, that Jesus is the Son of God and thus God himself as well, the second person of the Trinity. Lewis says, it just doesn't make any sense for Jews to come up with this kind of le legend because it goes against everything that they would have believed. But second... In his particular area of expertise as a literary scholar, Lewis writes this. He says, Now as a literary historian, 
I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at the time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. There's nothing, even in modern literature, until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. He's saying from, from a literary standpoint, like this is not how you write legend, even in the ancient world. Like this is not how you craft something so that people like view someone in a different light than what they were historically. And then on top of all of that that we just heard from Lewis, we see the historical accounts of eyewitnesses both in scripture and outside of that, especially for what we celebrate next week, the resurrection, the good news we get to celebrate on Easter. And the historical witness for that is significant. We also have remarkable textual evidence that, that these Gospels were written within the lives, uh, within a generation of Jesus' death. And so those eyewitnesses, those, these writings could have very easily been tossed aside as illegitimate, as inauthentic, as false witnesses, because they were within the actual happenings of that. Other people could have, that were eyewitnesses could have come along and said, that's just simply false, but that's not what happened. And then we have the fact that those who wrote these accounts about Jesus were all either martyred or exiled for their claims. You don't do that if you've just made up a legend and you know you've made up a legend. So arguing that these accounts, that what Jesus is claiming about himself is legend, is flimsy at best. At best. And so this drives us to our next question. Question number two. Who then do you believe Jesus is? If, it's not, if, if what we have here is not legend, but is the accurate historical account of what Jesus said, how he lived, what he did, what he accomplished, then who do you believe Jesus is? In verse 39 and 40, this is what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying to the Jews in that day, he's saying, look, you're refusing to come to me as Lord. They were coming to him. They were talking to him. They were learning from him as a rabbi. No one had a problem with that. What they had a problem with was when he began to make himself equal with God, right? That's what we saw earlier in chapter 5. And so the question we have to ask and that we're confronted with here is who do we believe Jesus is? Just as Jesus was confronting them with who do they actually believe Jesus is? Do you believe Jesus really is who he says he is, who the scriptures and many other eyewitnesses corroborate as well as even died for? Look, church, like we've got to recognize our options. We've got to recognize our options. This isn't, this isn't like our culture of customization and endless choice. 
And we love endless choice. We love, like I love in particular, walking into a, a fast food restaurant and they've got one of those Coke machines that you can choose like whatever drink you want and then you can customize it even further right then and there, right? And remember as kids, we, like, we used to like mix them all together. Like now you got one machine that can do it for you, right? Like I love it. I love it. But um, even more so, like my favorite restaurant in Columbia is Flyover. All right, if you've tried flyover, um, you know, like, you go there and you, you, you're not forced into just choosing one entree. But instead, you, you choose multiple entrees, and, you, and it's like family style, right? And so you get, like, the best of all worlds. Well, here's the deal. Jesus doesn't work like that. Some want to pick and choose pieces of Jesus to follow. They want to acknowledge that Jesus is a great teacher, that he's laid this great ethical foundation for life. Or, or, or maybe like you want to you want to affirm that Jesus is this great spiritual guru that, that you can emulate. But if Jesus isn't a legend, and what we look at here is actually what he taught, then is a great moral teacher even an option? C.S. Lewis is helpful again. In his classic in Mere Christianity, he talks about this, this trilemma. All right, a dilemma is. Two options, trilemma is three. He says, really our options, if, if, if Jesus isn't a legend, all right, if this isn't a legend, then we have three options before us. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. That's what we're faced with. And Lewis says this, you can follow along on the screen. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. Liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but you cannot let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely that may seem. And, and no, Lewis was an atheist, right? At one point in which like, he wrestled with the strangeness and the terrifying and the unlikeliness of it from his perspective. But he ultimately came to say, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. He's Lord. Look, you don't get to piecemeal Jesus, picking the things we like or don't like. Because like, there is no room for like him being a great moral teacher and, and us just like picking the things we like because it's all integrated in with his claim to be Lord and God. So he's either a lunatic in claiming that, he's a liar in claiming that, a con man of the worst kind, or he is Lord. 
This isn't like Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights where he's like, I like baby Jesus, and so I'm going to pray to like Christmas Jesus and, and not bearded Jesus or teenage Jesus or whatever, and his son's like, I like ninja Jesus. That's what I want, right? And, and like we don't get to choose that. Like that's not, that's not how this works. We must choose to follow Jesus as Lord or not at all. What Jesus is getting at in verses 39 and 40 is trying to drive home the point that you can only find life by coming to him as Lord. He says in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Like you're searching all over the place to find life. You're you're scratching and clawing as you're, you're scouring the scriptures. You think you're finding eternal life in them, but because you don't recognize me in them, you're missing the boat completely. It's either come to Jesus on his terms or not at all. Find life in Jesus as both Savior and Lord or not at all. See, the Pharisees... The Pharisees and the crowds were were glad to come to Jesus, but on their terms. As they sought life through all kinds of means, they, they were glad to add a little Jesus to the mix. As they sought satisfaction and hope and peace and joy and eternal life even, like they were glad to add a little Jesus as rabbi and great moral teacher to the mix. But they weren't willing to come to him as Lord. How many people in our day do the very same thing? Or how many of us, rather, have the misconception that we can try to embrace Jesus as Savior, but not Lord? That we can embrace Jesus as Savior who gives us forgiveness of sins, a ticket to heaven and a ticket out of hell, but not as Lord who, yes, frees me from sin, but actually makes me a servant of his and, and has all authority over my life. When we say Jesus is Lord, what we mean is a commitment to follow after him with our whole life. What we sung earlier in the songs, all to you we surrender. A life surrendered to him as Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Like the Pharisees with the scriptures, some try to approach Jesus for what we can get from him. Eternal life, a ticket to heaven, Yes, we want you as our Savior. We want you to save us, but then we kind of want to do our own thing. And you never actually come to him as Lord. But here's the issue. Please hear this. Scripture and Jesus know nothing of this splintered approach to him. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not also as Lord. Look, when Jesus preaches the good news of the gospel. He, he preaches the good news and then he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Yes, it's a call to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That we're all sinners, we're all broken, we, all, like, we are all separated from the God of the universe who is also the giver of life. And so we are set with an eternity apart from God. We try to work and claw our way back to him, but we'll never make it back because we cannot... We cannot make ourselves clean. We, we cannot build up a righteousness that, that is holy enough to get back into God's presence and find life again. What Jesus did is he, he came down and he paid the penalty that we deserve to be able to give us life by resurrecting from the dead. Jesus accomplished our salvation and we don't 
We don't contribute anything to that. Nothing. It's all Jesus in the work to give us salvation, forgiveness of sins, life and peace and hope and joy. Yes, it's a call to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, said, By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. But it's not a mere mental assent to those ideas or a consent to let Jesus be our Savior. Because James, who wrote a a small letter towards the back of the New Testament, he says even the demons believe and shudder. Coming to Jesus can't just be a consent, yes, Jesus, you can save me, and then we go on living our merry way because it's also a call to repentance. It's a call to turn, to stop serving self and sin and to serve Jesus as Lord of our life, to find life in him day in and day out, to stop trying to be the the masters of our own lives because, man, we mess it up royally, don't we? (laughs) We're, we, we try to go after life, and yet we're constantly confronted with the anxiety that comes with that, the depression, the, the loneliness, the, 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 the lack of satisfaction that we find when we actually reach the goals that we think are going to bring life. We're really bad masters and lords of our own life. Jesus is seeking to, to save us from that as well. He's saying, come to me as Lord so you can be freed from being your own master and that you can enjoy the freedom that it is to walk in me. And so repentance is a call to turn. Turn from being Lord of your own life to letting Jesus be Lord of your life. And I want to be crystal clear because clarifying salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but also clarifying that Jesus is both Savior and Lord does not mean a life lived perfectly under the Lordship of Christ, like we've got to get it all together, that we've got to begin to live under the Lordship of Christ before we actually are secure in our salvation. Let's be really clear, that's, that's not the case. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But true faith trusts in Jesus not just as Savior, but also is a commitment to follow him as Lord of our lives. Eternal life is found in our initial turning or repentance, turning of our heart, and a trusting of belief in Jesus. An abundant life in the here and now is found in the daily turning and trusting in Jesus as Lord. The Lordship of Jesus doesn't cripple our life, but it unleashes the fullness of life. So we've got to, like, we either come to Jesus as Savior and Lord, or we don't come to him at all. And so that leads us to our final question, question number three. It's what we are confronted with in verses 41 to 44. Question number three is this, what keeps you from embracing Jesus as Lord? What keeps you from from actually day in and day out following him as Lord? If you've you've been walking with Jesus for a while, if you've made that commitment, hey, I want to surrender my life to you, what keeps you from surrendering it all to not compartmentalizing parts? And what have you yet to give over to him as Lord? Maybe for you, it's, it's also, you've never turned and trusted in Jesus today, so what's keeping you from embracing him as both Savior and Lord? And, and knowing the life that Jesus longs to give you, the life that he came and suffered on the cross for, that he came and experienced the greatest pain that anyone could possibly imagine, not the physical pain on the cross, but the spiritual wrath of God towards sin. He took that for you. 
If you've never experienced that, what's keeping you from embracing him as Lord? See, for the Jews, it was a pleasure or approval of others in their religious life, their ability to perform, their identification with the right rabbi or the right teacher, in other words, or just simply their family heritage and tradition, their identity. Verses 41 to 44 says this, Jesus starts it by saying, I don't receive glory from people. Kind of gives us a hint about where he's going with what keeps them from embracing him as Lord. He says, I don't receive glory from people or pleasure from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him, because he's playing your own game. And he says, but how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How many of us are ordering our lives like the Jews in Jesus' day based on the pleasure of people rather than the pleasure of God? Based on the approval of others, social media, of teachers or parents or, or peers, whatever it may be. How many are more driven by that? And that's keeping us from submitting to Jesus as both Savior and Lord and trusting in him and following after him because we're worried about what other people will think or we're worried about um, you know, whatever's going to get us applause. We're worried about where, where we're going to find our approval rather than seeking the pleasure and the approval of God. Look, we need to recognize here that it is the people in Jesus' day who were most knowledgeable who were the most religious, who were the most moral that Jesus was directly speaking to. The Pharisees culturally looked the most Jewish, but they actually were the most far off from what God intended them to receive in the Old Testament scriptures. And so look, we do not need to find comfort in just simply knowing the party lines or the right things to say by simply I speak against the problems of culture around me. Like, of course, I'm against the wrong thing or the right kinds of things. We don't need to find comfort in simply identifying the right or wrong teachers and identifying with them. We don't need to find comfort in just simply continuing in a family heritage or tradition that, like, we kind of grew up in this cultural Christianity. Like, we are, our, our family's Christian, so I'm Christian. We don't find comfort in that. Don't find comfort in signaling the right virtues on social media to those around you. Don't find comfort in, in canceling the right people or, or embracing the right people. Don't find comfort in practicing the religious or moral rules of Scripture because none of that provides life. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, you can do all of that dance all day long and all you will do is crush yourself under the weight of that burden. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, you don't know life. And if you aren't consistently being confronted with challenges to your perspective and your manner of life by Jesus and his word, then you may very well have created a filter that approaches Jesus and his word according to your opinion rather than according to his lordship and according to his authority in your life. See, when Jesus is Lord, we approach this word with trembling because it confronts us in all the areas of life in which we haven't yet to fully submit to Jesus as Lord. And so what's in your way? 
What's keeping you from embracing Jesus as Lord today? How are you believing that, in other words, as Lewis would talk about, how are you believing Jesus is a liar or a lunatic rather than Lord? How are you missing out on life because the way you approach Scripture is to doubt his words and de facto call him liar or a lunatic? Maybe you're bent to see Jesus as a lunatic because surely he doesn't actually mean for me to love my enemies and turn the other cheek. Doesn't he know that would lead to a loss of liberty and life? Yeah, I think he kind of does on the cross, right? Jesus must be a liar or he doesn't really want me to be happy. Surely what's best for me is to live out my sexuality and not limit it to the boundaries that he affirms in biblical marriage. He must be a liar. That can't be good for me to limit my sexuality. Jesus must be a lunatic because surely lust or a bit of porn every now and then isn't the same as adultery. Surely it's not that big of a deal that we need to do whatever it takes to eliminate it from our lives. Maybe Jesus must be a liar because surely he doesn't mean what he says there about taking up your cross daily and following him or there about elsewhere in scripture about leaving behind family and loving him more than father and son and brother and sister and mother, so much so that it looks like we hate them compared to the kind of love that we have for him. How are you believing that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic and not Lord? Look, coming to Jesus is the only path to life to righteousness, to true, everlasting, abundant life, both here and now and into all eternity. Coming to him as Lord is a beautiful gift. He says elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, come to me, you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's the good news. Like our Lord is is not a taskmaster whipping us along. No, he he doesn't give us the boundaries that he gives us in scripture in order to crush our life, but instead in order to lead us to flourishing in life and find the fullness of life. But there is one clear thing that we have to deal with. And it's that we don't get to choose the pieces of Jesus that we submit to and the pieces of Jesus that we don't. And so the question today is, have you come to him as both Savior and Lord? Have you just tried to grab onto Jesus for how he's going to get you out of hell? Have you just tried to grab onto Jesus for how he's going to like calm your anxiety? Have you just tried to grab onto Jesus for the things that he can give you? Or have you actually chosen to follow after the totality of who Jesus is as Savior and Lord? Have you chosen to to, to trust in him for forgiveness and to follow him wherever that leads? If you haven't, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait until the sermon is over even to begin to respond to God, to cry out to him, look, I am a sinner. I I need saving, yes, but I also want to surrender my life to you because I know that you are the good and faithful one and I'm not a good master of my own life. God, take it from me. You can cry out to God. 
Give yourself over to him and he will save you right here, right now. It's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to get your life cleaned up first. You just come to him and surrender. Surrender your life, trusting in him. But if you have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, here's the thing, church. We've got to constantly be considering, are we living like Jesus is who he says he is? Day in and day out, are we coming to him as Lord? Are we repenting and believing? Are we continuing to give over aspect of our life, each aspect of our life to him as he reveals to us through his word the ways that we've been hanging on to control? Church, are we living like Jesus is who he says he is? Because we need to hear the call of this passage. Come to Jesus as Lord, or don't come at all. There is no middle ground. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We're, we, we praise you for the good news about Jesus, that he, he does offer us salvation, a free gift from you to save us from the destructiveness of sin that we've committed of our own choosing to walk away from you as king in the very first place, and yet you came as king and died for us. God, we thank you out of your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you would do that in your abundant, steadfast love. Lord, I pray that we would walk not just holding on to you as savior of our lives, but that we would embrace you as Lord, that we would follow you as the way and the truth and the life day in and day out. God, reveal to us today, each and every individual in this place, God, the areas of our lives that we have not fully surrendered over to you. God, by the power of your spirit, transform us. Lead us to repent and believe afresh in Jesus, in your lordship and its goodness. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.